Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Welcome back, everyone. Hello. Another, I want to say Tuesday because it's Tuesdays when they drop, but it's Friday. <laughs> As always, we have no idea what day it is. Absolutely. As this whole year, we have no idea what time of day, what day, where we are. I don't know. Time it's, is it's a construct week. that has no value to me anymore. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really excited about our guests today because I actually just binged this podcast a couple weeks ago and told Lauren we have to have someone from this podcast on I think I started listening to it when I was at the dentist okay. <laughs> and then I just didn't stop the entire day I just had my ear pods in the whole day everything I was doing so we're really excited to have Rachel Lissy here an education consultant for the nice white parents and a million other things she does so welcome thanks for ha- being on our podcast Thank you for having me. So can you tell a little bit to our listeners about your background and how you became an educational consultant for the podcast? And then talk to us a little bit about the podcast. Sure. Happily. Thank you. So the way I became consultant for the podcast was actually, you know, listened to a lot of the stories that Hannah had done. And a couple of five, six or seven years ago, she did a couple of uh, two back-to-back stories. One was about integration and mm. it was a part of a larger episode about integration more broadly, including a really mm. incredible story by Nicole Hannah-Jones. And then she also did a story about discipline and in particular disproportionate discipline and uh, sort of what some folks dubbed the discipline gap, so disproportionate racialized discipline, the ways in which students of color are suspended and expelled at, at higher rates. And I reached out to her because my dissertation research and the kind of a lot of the work that I do in my own work as a consultant is really focused on the ways in which those two stories are actually intersecting. And so specifically, my dissertation research focused on the history of discipline policy in New York City. And what I found in the research was that this sort of shift towards more punitive policies, so more suspensions and more punishments, and away from the kind of in loco parentis model of discipline that had sort of dominated in schools, that this shift, which really happened in the, the mid-20th century in the 1950s, late 1950s, that this shift was actually in part driven by white parents who were Mm -hmm. resistant to integration. Mm -hmm. And so white parents in New York City kind of seized on school disorder as the way to legitimize their resistance and really pushed for viewing these as sort of criminal acts and as a reason why we could characterize black kids and black schools as unsafe and thus dangerous to integrate. And so I reached out to Hannah to basically say, like, I, these two stories are told. They're actually, in many ways, they're, they're sort of the same story. And through that, we just started a kind of a correspondence. And then more and more, like, she would sort of bring me into stories, particularly stories she was doing about education. And early on, she said, oh, I've been focused on this school in Brooklyn, IS-293, mm-hmm. um, or the School for International Studies. And I'm, you know, doing this story on them. And I was said, oh, I worked at that school. Because <laughs> in the early 2000s, I ran the after-school program that actually served both of the schools. Oh, in wow. 
So that was like a sort of crazy coincidence. But through that, I said to her, you know, I, as she was telling me about what was happening, and this was in the, if you know that podcast, episode one really focuses on what happens when a cohort of white parents decides to send their kids to sixth grade at the school. Mm-hmm. And I think that enrollment goes from like 30 kids one year to 120 kids the next. Yeah, it's wow. crazy. Almost all the new kids being from these sort of white families that, in some ways, you know, you could say adopted or colonized, whatever language you want. We'll talk about that, right? Yeah, they sort of decides yeah. to, to come into the school en masse. And she was just in that early part. She was like just reporting what was happening there. And, you know, I love history. And so I said, well, we should go to the archives and see what oh, the history wow. of the school was. Yeah. And so we went to the archives. And that's sort of, if you know the story, where a lot of the kind of things went from there, which was discovering that what was happening at the school at this particular moment was actually a recurring pattern that had happened at the school, you know, since they were trying to decide where to place the school in the early 1960s. So that's sort of how I came to be involved in the story and also was able to kind of share with her because I love history, but I also currently work kind of pretty deeply in schools in New York City in the area doing professional development and uh, capacity building. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to kind of also, I think, I hope, bring some perspectives around what it actually means to be in schools right now. It really goes to the notion of history repeats itself. <laughs> and, yes. you know, to know where we are going, we need to know where we have been. And I think that is what is so fascinating about a lot of these podcasts and websites and just people like yourselves that are getting this topic out there. One of the things that Amanda and I were really hopeful about our podcast and we started it, gosh, in 2017 already, it seems like just yesterday, was to just get the conversation started. And I think that the podcast, I mean, even just from the onset, right, of just the title, Nice White Parents Podcast, right? It really tried, you're just like, wait a second, why are they saying that, right? And then you kind of get into it and you're like, oh, I see, right? So I find that really fascinating that you were able to kind of blend your love of history and then your current work of what you're doing. And so I kind of want to talk a little bit about that and then circle back to the podcast. What is the organization that you work for? So I work for an organization called Ramapo for Children. Okay. And we're, it's interesting, history nerds, we're an organization that has a long history too, which we started in 1922. Oh, wow. As a summer camp in Ramapo State Forest, that's how we got the name, mm. that was originally for kids who had actually been orphaned by World War One. It's interesting. It's like sort of an early iteration yeah. of trauma-informed yeah. uh, care. Absolutely. Um, and it was very much in line with the, like the... The thinking at the time, which has its own sort of paternalism in it, was very much that like the cities are the problem. And if we get kids to these sort of more rural settings, they will it'll be therapeutic for them. And so the the camp was sort of started as this therapeutic milieu, which was like the sort of the type of approach that it was taking. But over the years has evolved and we continue the organization continues to run a, a summer camp that serves kids who would be labeled as having like a most behavioral or social emotional challenges, including a fairly large proportion of kids on the autism spectrum. Okay. Um, and then through that work on campus, we've created a professional development office that provides training and coaching and capacity building. And that work has evolved. Originally, it was much more in line with like classroom management. But I think as we've sort of understood and embraced an, kind of an equity and anti-racist framework, we're much more, I would say now in the 
the sort of the doing restorative practices and um, some trauma and resilience informed the healing centered kind of frameworks, and then also SEL and support for inclusion. And so I work with schools doing workshops and coaching in support of those goals. We always like to see how people got to where they are. What was it about this organization in particular, aside from the really cool historical background, really drew you in? Was it the fact that there were so many different types of kiddos or even the trauma-informed? Or was it the history that really drew you to it in the first place? It's so funny. So I, you know, I say part of what drew me was that I, in many ways, kind of came of age there because I worked there as a summer camp counselor when oh, I was in high school. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So I have a little bit of a wow. unique like, sort yeah. of personal mm-hmm. story with this particular camp, which was I sort of discovered my interest and in, and also what I valued and what I understood to be a supportive community for young people through my work there as a summer camp counselor. And then through there was like, oh, I really love working with kids particularly kids who, you know, have these sort of emotional behavioral needs. I like the challenge of it. I love like kind of crisis and conflict and de-escalation and all the sort of things that those, that sort of environment helps Mm -hmm. to, that you have opportunities to work through and learn both about yourself and about young people through. When I went from there to kind of like working in residential care, and I think that the swing from like this sort of magical summer camp to this institution was part of this pretty formative experience of like, really understanding the ways in which young people and their behaviors is sort of shaped and situated within institutions, but also understanding the ways in which adults' behavior are kind of shaped by the context in which they're in. And so that very much, I think, drew me to wanting to be interested in sort of understanding organizational theory. And that's sort of the work that I did a lot in my uh, dissertation research was really thinking about policy and institutions and how that kind of enables and constrains behavior at the individual level. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you find in your work, even beginning as a camp counselor and then going at everything you've worked so far, you find some a lot of connections between the lack of support that a lot of these kids have at school and kind of how they end up needing this kind of care? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really complicated, right? So it's also, it's a lack of support that the kids have. It's a lack of support that adults have. It's the mm-hmm. kind of mindsets that we bring to the work. I mean, I definitely would say that part of what drew me to nice white parents was the work I've done about kind of trying to confirm my own white identity and understand how much of my early work really was thinking about kind of kids as um, broken and in need of being fixed. And my role as someone who could be like a good savior and helper and sort of kind of unpacking a lot of those ideas. And instead, I think really trying to shift to understand how do we create communities where we are doing with, not to, and for, like how do we create environments where we can kind of learn together and understand that like none of us are all fixed and we're all kind of broken in a beautiful way. And, you know, I think that was all there, but I didn't have a kind of a language or a framework or a consciousness to understand it. And I think I have deepened and my work has deepened as I have understood that, that it's not just that schools aren't meeting kids' needs, which is true, but also like what are the systems and the ideas out of which schools have been shaped And those ideas we have about, you know, sort of like the deficit models that we bring to the work and that, you know, what the sort of normal, what's normal and the kind of labels and pathologizing, all those things that sort of can play out in those environments. And I think to understand personally that it's like how liberating it is when you can see beyond that, both for yourself and for the the young people in the communities you create. I think that is something that Amanda and I 
you know, strive to do. And it's difficult at times simply because as attorneys in this area of special education, we're focused on one case at a time. Like obviously we have multiple clients, but I think that these kind of bigger organizations that are able to really look at their communities and it all starts with local support, right? And Mm -hmm. and for you to kind of have found, and it's funny, I, I was just saying this in another recording about how we split up our lives. So you can really pinpoint the start, right? The catalyst for this area that you found yourself working in now in high school. And how many people can really say that, right? But as you kind of reflect back on your life, you see these big moments of where your life turned. Do you kind of see either the podcast or the work that you're doing now as another stepping stone in like an eventual, you know, plan that you have moving forward? Or are you pretty content with everything as is? <laughs> well, okay. I would say, what are we, 2021? Yeah. Pandemic life. I don't think oh, anyone well, is yeah, that's Yeah. <laughs> For a hot second, <laughs> right. I forgot. <laughs> yeah. Hard to answer that question that's in true. this moment. I don't think any yeah. of us are really living our best lives right now. I think I um, but just I do think this... blacked out for a second, not realizing where we were because <laughs> I was so enthralled in the but conversation. It is, oppor- <laughs> it is an opportunity, though. I mean, I feel like one thing that I hope, I hope we can come back from this. I hope we can be different. And I don't necessarily, I'm not going to say that I think that like this is going to, schools are going to be transformed and there's right. some great revolution. But I do think that like, I hope we can show up at least a, like a little bit differently in the way we do this work. And I do think that one thing that I think was the sort of behind the scenes thing that was going on with nice white parents is like, mm-hmm. what is the purpose of public education? Right. And how do we define public education? And do we define it as something that's really just about kind of skill building and credentials and like a kind of a piece of uh, something you give your kids that then allows them, it's almost like a type of property you're giving them that they then can take on and move through the world in many ways, like this sort of private good that we yeah. compete for. And yeah. so white parents, mm-hmm. when they look out primarily for the interests of their own kid, that they're just playing within that system. Mm-hmm. Or do we try to think about education as something that is a public good that that is about our democracy and our interdependence and about what we need from each other as communities. And I do hope that this moment and both the the pandemic and also the kind of the other crises that we've been facing as a country, I I hope that it can help us to deepen our understanding of how much we need each other Mm -hmm. and how much the social aspect of schools, like being in community together, that is so deeply valuable that I hope this is a moment that can turn us back towards that mission and that goal for schools, because I think that just starting from that understanding of the goal of schools has all sorts of cha- has all sorts of ramifications that change how we are and how we act in those places um, and how we show yeah. up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the goal of schools, a big part is education, but education gets, the word education and the concept behind it gets lost often. People think of education as just the K through 12 and then maybe college schooling, right? Not education on a grander global scale of how we all are being educated every day about things and whether or not we choose to, you know, education is not just, I'm going to read something in a book and I'm going to memorize it. But it is something that I agree. I think if we I hope, I try to be optimistic about the things that we are learning, how we are being educated as communities, as a country, and as the world that, you know, there's more to education than that. We can be doing more to help each other. And hopefully, I want to be optimistic. (laughs) Yeah, because I think the other thing that 
to me really stuck out in my own personal experience, but I think also the hope comes through in the in the podcast is that you know in, to truly strive to create integrated or to shift away from segregated towards integrated um, structures and systems and policies for schools means it's not easy. Like it's not, you just show up in the same building and all of a sudden yeah. everything is great. Right. It's really, it's actually hard work and it's hard work for everybody. <laughs> and I think part of what the goal of like what kind of leaders and educators can do is to make, to show the why of that work, right? Like that it's worth it. And I think the why of that work, there's been this sort of like, oh, it's great for everybody. White kids learn how to like, you know, um, mm-hmm. race diversity more. Mm-hmm. But there's something about that that still makes it seem like something that's like going on the resume. That's right. still sort of mm-hmm. like individualized. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, in the same way people talk about inclusion in that way too. Right. But like everyone right. gets more compassion. And I think all that's true. But I think there's these sort of, if we if we can just take, take a bigger step back and say that the actual goals of education are the goals that we actually get practice in schools working through the like the fundamental tensions and challenges of democratic life and being in community then that allows us to do that hard work right like cuz i think for teachers in particular i think about the fact that you know integration inclusion it's all harder it's like you you know it, it changes how hard you have to work that really came out in, in the history in New York City, which was that, like, while the teachers unions were kind of supportive integration, they also didn't want it to change their working conditions that much, right? Like, they didn't want to actually have to teach in different schools or, mm-hmm. you know, have classes that were, you know, that were more homogeneous, heterogeneous. And right. so I think there's a sense that, like, we all have to have get better at explaining why it's worth it to do this work. And I do think this is a moment where I would hope that those ideas are kind of closer to the surface. Absolutely. And I think it's a subtle shift in perspective. I think the work is hard if you're not properly trained or your own biases are preventing you from seeing the actual mission of an education. So so while I agree there is work to be done, I, I think that, you know, it may seem daunting simply because the resources may be there, but it's not given in a digestible way. Because all a teacher may see is, oh my God, this is so much more work. Work, right. And uh, I think if we just shift that perspective, I really think that, you know, like I said, you want to understand where you're going to go, but you also have to understand where you've been. And I think that's what is really great about the podcast and kind of laying that out. And we've had people from different organizations on that that are creating those communities, right? And they are the parents that, you know, the white parents that are sending their children, you know, or living in different communities to try and make that change happen. And Amanda and I say this all the time, uh, that change really does come from the parents and I get it. We're tired. Parents are tired. <laughs> and it's just so much easier to maintain the status quo. But Rachel, like you said, if we can just take a step back and see what those core values are, that, that core mission of education, then it that daunting task of that hard work, I think, gets taken away. Because we're going to be in it together. And we're going to provide you with the resources. We're going to be providing you with the funding. We're going to be providing you with people that will help you. I think that is what I'm hoping the reset of the pandemic has will do, right, is reset that. But time will tell. <laughs> and like Amanda said, you know, we try to be hopeful. But yeah, we realize there is still work to be done. Yeah, there's always work to be done. But yeah. that's also like part of me is like, that's what you went into. That's why we're educated. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because that's the we're invested in that process. I think we just have to 
like you know deep in how we think about that um and and as as a process that also entails us right like the white parents that try you know that show up integrating the school and that they show up in one way (laughs) at the beginning of the series and it's clearly a way in which they're kind of causing harm and reproducing a lot of these like power dynamics and we have to learn to show up differently I think one of the hopes, because it's interesting, since the show has come out, there's been a lot of like, you know, tell us what to do. And I, I think yeah. that um, both Hannah and I have been sort of pushing back, like, that's not, we're not going to tell you what to do. But there is a way in which like, if you know better, you should be doing like, you can't do the same stuff anymore. You should, the, the, right. we can't keep doing the same stuff now that we know. And how do we learn from the past, which is the beauty, I think, of studying it. Yeah. Is, I mm-hmm. think something that I think there's a reason why schools are sort of ahistorical, right? like why like we don't think about this. We walk into a school building and we don't think about why it got put where it got put and what was the story of it and what were the politics behind it. And like we don't even think about what was happening in the school 10 years ago. It's like it only exists when we walk into it. I think that allows us to erase a lot of that that history. So I'm um, you know, part of me feels like. Now, every school I walk into, I want a five-part podcast series on. <laughs> there is one. There's that story for every school. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. it. Rachel, how can people learn more about you or contact you? So you can contact me through Ramapo for Children, and you can visit their website at ramaphoforchildren.org. And then my address is, uh, you know, is available there, but it's also, it's just rlissy at ramaphoforchildren.org. And I also, I have a, a personal website, which is rachellissyphd.com. Um, and you can contact me through that as well. Um, if you want to learn more about like my own personal work, as well as the, the work of the organization of, of Ramapo. Fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on our podcast while we were promoting another podcast that people should listen to. But it's it has a it has a start and an end. Unlike a man and I, we're just gonna keep Go on, on keeping on. Yeah, exactly. As long as you guys will have us. Rachel, thank you again for your time and we will talk to you guys next week. Bye. 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 Bye.